Welcome back. You're listening to Deb Hutton, your guest host for The Rush this week. It is just after 5 o'clock, so that means it is time for me to talk to you about the News Talk 1010 contest we've got going on. News Talk 1010 wants to bust your bills. Today's 5 p.m. keyword is nice. That was nice. You have until the end of the day to enter the keyword at Newstalk1010.com. Next Monday, Moore in the Morning will be busting a listener's bills with $1,010. Keywords are announced every weekday at 7, 11, and 5. So the more you listen, the better your chances of having your bills busted. Full details available at Newstalk1010.com. And again, the keyword is nice. So cast your mind back to 2019. This was not a big issue at the time, and you might wonder why I think it is an issue today, so I'll fill you in. That is, in 2019, when the Ontario government made gave municipalities the option to use open tendering. What does that mean? Well, that's where... Anybody can bid on a project. Of course, you have you know certain specifications for a particular project. Uh, you certainly would have some kind of minimum level of standards as a municipality, but you could open up a publicly funded project, whatever it might be, a publicly funded service, whatever it might be, to anyone who met the criteria and who wanted to bid. The opposite of open tendering, of course, is closed tendering where municipalities in this case, or other companies, but we're talking about municipalities, where they have a set list of approved uh, suppliers, workers, that can bid on the contract. So instead of anybody who meets certain specifications, you deal with a closed set of individuals who are then invited to bid on a public project. This was an opportunity in 2019 given to all municipalities, and guess what? Every municipality opted in to be able to use open tendering, save and accept one, and that was the city of Toronto. Joining me to discuss open versus closed tendering is City Councillor Brad Bradford. Welcome back to The Rush, Councillor. It's great to be here with you. So the reason I asked Councillor Bradford to come on is because this actually became an issue, the notion of open versus uh, closed tendering in the last mayoralty election, which Brad Bradford ran in and ran partly on a proposal to bring in open tendering. Tell us about your version and your reasons for why open tendering would actually be good for the city of Toronto. Well, there's a lot of reasons why this makes sense, and particularly at this moment, Deb, as we are staring down the largest tax hike in the the city of Toronto's history, uh, we need to be finding ways to deliver services and infrastructure projects for people uh, in a more cost-effective manner. You did a really good job outlining the premise of open tendering, the idea that Anyone would be able to, you know, qualified, anyone would be able to bid on uh, City of Toronto contracts for our, our infrastructure projects, whether that is, you know, building community centres or working on our roads or doing maintenance. Uh, and as it exists today, we only provide that opportunity to two unions, and yet there are dozens of unions uh, across the province and in the GTA that would love to bid on that work. Ultimately, we would be able to get more competitive, cost-effective pricing, and we would also be able to mobilize more union workers uh, to perform these jobs here in the city of Toronto. Today, as it stands, it's only two union shops, 
and that comes at the expense of time and money and opportunities for other workers. I'm speaking with Brad Bradford, who's a Toronto City Councillor and who in the last mayoralty election ran partially on a proposal to open up tendering for the city to a, a wider variety of, you say unions, I'd say any entity, union or non-unionized. And the reason I wanted to have this conversation today, as you pointed out, uh, Councillor, is because there has been some evidence considerable evidence, I'll use Hamilton as an example, that when you take on open tendering as a municipality, you save money, which I think makes sense to a lot of people. It's just some common sense. Hamilton says between 9 and 32 percent were the savings they found on projects with an average of 21 percent savings across their projects since they took on open tendering in 2019. So as you said, in face of perhaps 16.5% property tax increases. Isn't this something we should look at? And why do you think we're not, Brad Bradford? Of course it is. And and you mentioned the opportunity that the City of Toronto had to open up shop and provide more opportunities for people to bid on the work. 2018-2019, um, when, when the province provided municipalities the autonomy, autonomy to make that decision, Every other municipality in this province decided to pursue open tendering for those savings, for those efficiencies, and to create opportunities for more workers to pursue the jobs. The City of Toronto decided to remain a closed shop, keeping it closed to two very powerful unions at the expense of everybody else. Now, at the time, the rationalization was, oh, you know, you're not really going to see those savings. Um, these these unions do good work, and, and they do great work. Um, but there are other folks that, that can do that work as well. And again, we need to make sure that we're delivering value for taxpayers. What has happened since? We now have four years of evidence. And you described the 21% average savings in Hamilton. Uh, Waterloo Region also uh, experienced significant savings. And it was the same story, municipality after municipality across the province. And the Cardis Foundation had uh, published an interesting report during our campaign uh, the mayoral campaign earlier in the spring, and they estimated that the city of Toronto could save over $300 million by opening uh, opening tendering to, to outside workers here in the city. And so as as Mayor Chow is, you know, jacking the taxes and we're staring down a double-digit tax increase, uh, obviously we need to look to find savings that might require us to change our process here at the city of Toronto, and this would be a great place to start where we could realize hundreds of millions of dollars of savings on an annual basis, uh, like every other municipality in the province. So $300 million is the estimate that was given on an annual basis by a foundation that looked into this. That's right. Yeah. So you talked about the you, you talked about the early it's a huge amount when we're when we're talking about a big deficit for the city, which, as you know, it cannot have and has to find a way to plug the, the hole. You talked about the early reasons for not doing it. Why today are we not considering it at City Hall? Uh, well, some of us are and we have those conversations, but I, I can tell you, I, I haven't seen the appetite or the interest from the new administration um, again, I think there's a lot of vested interests uh, here that um, certainly would not be supportive of this. Um, you know, there are specific unions that are not interested in opening up to more competition. Um, but I can tell you there's a lot of other unions and other workers um, who would be interested in doing that work here in the city of Toronto. And, you know, there ends up being a lot of fear-mongering about this. Uh, it's all nonsense. You know, we have some of the highest safety standards uh, in the country 
Uh, it's all legislative. We have a fair wage policy here in Toronto. Um, all of that, those arguments start to fall away when you look at the facts. Uh, and then you're just sort of left with this, uh, you know, this sort of feeling that there are very powerful interests at play in the politics of this. And that is why there was no other mayoral candidate that was championing this idea. Uh, I understand that it's not necessarily popular with some of those powerful uh, interests. But at the end of the day, I think it is about standing up for taxpayers, making sure we're delivering value and having a, a talent pool of workers who can get these projects done more cost effectively and faster for Torontonians. Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford, thanks so much for joining The Rush this afternoon. Anytime, Deb. We'll see you soon. As he said, he was the only councillor, the only candidate for mayor who took that position. I supported Anna Bailao, and it was the one issue I am, I was going to say happy to admit, or at least I'm honest enough to admit, that she and I disagreed on, as Brad Bradford well knows. Coming up after the break, the leader of the federal NDP, Jagmeet Singh, is going to join me. I'm going to ask him if he's got the solution to housing, because he says we need one in federal parliament. You're listening to Deb Hutton. This is The Rush on News Talk 1010. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me. It's Deb Hutton, your guest host this week. We're going to have a little bit of a programming change in the last half hour of the show. I'm going to be joined by Jim Richards, host of News Talk Tonight, just after the 5.30 break for traffic to give us a preview of his show. And then in what is usually the Jim Richards slot, I'm going to be joined by former Mayor John Tory. We're going to talk a little bit about the city and the cost of hosting, being a host city for the FIFA World Cup games that are slated for 2026 and get his take on it as he was the mayor when we signed that deal for 300 plus million dollars. But right now we are going to head to Ottawa. I am joined by the federal leader of the New Democratic Party, Jagmeet Singh. He has written a letter calling for the House of Commons to engage in an emergency debate on the state of housing and homelessness. Welcome back to The Rush. Thanks for having me back on The Rush. So first, tell me, uh, for our listeners who don't understand this, you know, what what's the process around the emergency debate that you've called for? Because this is a tactic that opposition members are able to use periodically um, against the government. Absolutely. So we normally look at a, an issue that's very pressing of the day, something that's risen to the level, level of being an emergency. I had just spent about a week in Edmonton where the city had called an emergency on housing and homelessness. Toronto had done the same. And I started noticing a very clear trend. We're at a very serious point when it comes to homes, not just people that are homeless in a cold country like ours, but people that have a home but are worried that if the rent goes up anymore, they're going to lose their home and end up maybe on the streets. People that have a house and are paying a mortgage, but with the mortgage rates keep on going up, they feel like they're not going to be able to pay their bills anymore. So there is really a serious point of crisis when it comes to housing. And so that's why we identified it as an emergency and put forward a request for a debate. But more important than the debate is to push the Liberal government to act on it. They've had almost well over eight years, going on nine years, to deal with this. They've admitted they should have and could have done more. And now we want to push them to really take this seriously. And from a process perspective, what happened with your request of the Speaker? The Speaker denied the request, so we did not get the emergency debate. But it doesn't mean we're going to let up. We really believe that this is such a serious point that it has to be taken with the urgency that the the situation demands. And 
we've been saying there's there's 24 Liberal MPs in Toronto. What have they done over the past nine years? We've got refugees sleeping on the streets. We've got homeless encampments. And we've got residents in Toronto saying, I don't know if I can pay my rent if there's an increase. I don't know if I can keep on paying for the cost of my home. So we've got young people saying, I can't even imagine ever owning a home, let alone finding a place that I can afford to rent. That's the state of affairs in Toronto. And we're saying that it can't... It, it shouldn't be this way, and it doesn't have to be this way. One of the things you point out in your call for an emergency debate on housing and homelessness is that the government has been reactive and not proactive. And you directly say Canadians deserve answers and solutions. So I'm going to put the question to you. What are your answers and solutions as leader of the Federal New Democratic Party? Well, one of the things that's become really clear is we can't expect that the exact same approach that got us into this mess is going to somehow get us out of it. And what I think about is this approach of purely focusing on private development only. The other approach that's certainly not going to work is what we saw with Doug Ford, selling off public land to rich developers, which is pretty much what Pierre Polyev is offering. That's not going to solve this problem either. What we're proposing is we need all of the above, not just a one solution only. We need to look at, of course, incentivizing private development, but we also need to look at other options like not-for-profit housing, we need to look at cooperative housing. We need a specific strategy on folks on student housing because they're competing with other people that have a good job. They don't. And so they're all in the same market where student housing is a different type of need and can be built in a different way. Dormitories can have higher density and are very fitting for student life. And it wouldn't fit for someone starting off a young family, for example. So we need all of the solutions on the table. We also need to desperately keep the affordable homes that we already have. What I mean by that is a lot of affordable homes have been sold off uh, over the Liberals uh, so far nine years or eight plus years in power. 200,000 affordable homes were sold off. Uh, the Liberals basically allowed that to happen. Under the Conservatives, 800,000, according to housing experts, were lost. 800,000 were sold off while they were in power. Imagine having a million deeply affordable homes still available, how much easier things would be for people. So we need to keep what we have that's affordable. We're proposing an acquisition fund to do that. Okay, so I wanted to get some specifics. So your last sentence was was an actual specific. So an acquisition fund, how much and what would it do? Well, we would model it after what the BCNDP has already put in place. It's actually their uh, great initiative that they did. And so what they put forward is, based on the needs, they put a fund, an open amount of uh, funds, that allow for, if a building, for example, is being sold to a rich developer or uh, people are getting rent evicted, to keep that building affordable, this fund would allow for the municipality to step in and say, okay, we want to step in and become owners of this building. Or it would allow for a community organization to own the building. Imagine any not-for-profit in a community. Or it would allow residents, if they want, to turn the building into a cooperative. A lot of the cooperatives in actually Toronto were created in under a similar program that existed in the past. So that's one. Uh, the cooperative and not-for-profit approaches, when we build homes, we have to build in affordability. The Liberal government has so far announced some great ideas around using federal land to build homes. We agree. But those projects only have about 10 or 15% of the project which is affordable, meaning the vast majority of the homes being built on public land might end up being luxury condos or luxury homes. That's not helping us solve the problem.
I'm speaking with Jagmeet Singh, leader of the Federal New Democratic Party, about his letter this week, which was turned down his request for an emergency debate on housing and homelessness in the House of Commons as it returned after its break just yesterday. Um, so do you foresee the federal government getting into the, the housing business as a landlord? Is that part of your proposal? Well, we, we look at when we were in a better position. And the problem that we're up against right now when it comes to housing affordability is has been a couple of decades in the making. And when we were in a better position, the federal government was actually involved in building homes. We think about one of the best periods of affordability was after the World War, after the World Wars, the, the post-World War homes that were built. Those were deeply affordable. Uh, the federal government was actively involved in building them. And it created the opportunity for young families to basically start their lives and have a place that was affordable. Similarly, a lot of the affordable places in cities across this country, including Toronto, were cooperatives that were also initiatives at the federal level. The federal government stopped really being actively involved in building homes in the 90s. And if you look at the graph of affordability, we took a serious plummet after that point. And so subsequent liberal and conservatives stopped investing in, in affordable homes. And again, no surprise, we don't have any affordability anymore. And so we absolutely need to get back into that work in a really urgent way. One of uh, you know the frustrations I think that people have is that there are many Canadians who would like to see uh, us go to the polls. And of course, the reason we're not is because of the arrangement between you and the federal liberals. Was housing and homelessness a specific part of your deal with Justin Trudeau's government? Yeah, we, we knew that this was a concern even two years ago when we were negotiating the agreement and we were able to secure almost $8 billion in funding for housing, the rapid housing initiative, so a plan to help with the homelessness, uh, the housing accelerator, which is liberals have been going around announcing new projects going up. Those are all projects that we actually included in our, in our agreement. Those are significant amounts of money that we were able to secure. But again, it's, it's this last-minute approach, this reactive approach of the government. We were only able to negotiate this uh, well after the liberals had had a significant mandate, and we're trying our best to force them to do what's right. But we realized they just did not have the urgency, even when we forced them to move ahead on some of these things. The fact that they're kind of delaying the process, they're not being very clear about affordability, uh, they are taking too much time when we're at a point where we need a high level of urgency to deal with the high stress that people are going through right now when they think about how hard it is to find a home. That's one of the things that we've really noticed working closely is to see that these liberals just don't understand how serious it is. They're, they seem very out of touch with what people are going through. So why not pull the plug? Well, to me, that doesn't solve the problem. We're at a point where we've got a position of power to force the government to do things, triggering an election, costing a billion dollars, and going to the polls when people are saying we need housing. I would think what would make sense is let's make Ottawa work for people, use the power we have. We've got an election every four years, and we will go to the polls. We will fight. I want to be the next prime minister. And in the meantime, we have an opportunity to get things done. Uh, it's hard to get things done. It takes a lot of work, but that work is worth it. We're getting things to happen. Dental care is out the door now. Kids under 12 already received it. Now kids under 18, seniors, people living with disabilities. This is life-changing, and we've been able to deliver on that. So we want to keep on getting stuff done for people. Our job isn't just to find the political opportunity to go to the elections. Our goal is why I got into politics is to make life better for people. We're able to do that in this position. We're going to do it as long as we can. Jagmeet Singh, thanks so much for joining me on The Rush this afternoon.
Appreciate it. Coming up after the break, a little preview of News Talk tonight with Jim Richards. Stay tuned. Welcome back. It's Deb Hutton, your guest host all this week on The Rush. Usually, I'm still talking about whatever topic I think is important to you, mm-hmm. our listeners. I'm not important. At this time. And then I save the, the best for oh, last, okay. usually, which is yep. Jim Richards, who's nattering voice you can hear in the background. <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's uh, come in a bit early today to talk to me about what's on his show tonight after seven o'clock. That is a, a very interesting topic you had on earlier about the uh, what is it, sunflower like lanyard. Na- lanyard that would notify people yeah. that you had an unseen disability. It was a great topic. Air Canada is part of their, you know, good motive, really good weird. idea in yeah. the broad sense, but I thought just a terrible execution. So if you have a hidden disability, mm. I took calls on this and our, to be fair, our audience was a bit split on it, but I find it insulting. If you have a hidden disability, you wear a sunflower laden lanyard around your neck as a passenger. Why not just go up to if you're there like what 45 at least 45 minutes before you board why wouldn't you just go up to the uh, person the flight attendant who is at the gate just before everybody lines up and identify yourself and say okay I'm in seat whatever and then that should be it shouldn't it yes and in fact we had uh, someone who had worked for one of the big airlines call and she said Look, boarding passes actually already have some forms of identification on it. Mm. You know, if you're an unaccompanied minor or you you require wheelchair assistance or whatever. So, you know, put a new category, right? People who have things like that, they don't want to be, they want to be treated normally, right? I mean, I think if they, they don't want to be identified. They don't want to be treated. I don't think they want to be, they want the same sort of treatment, but they don't want to be treated like they're special. And it's almost like... They are, it's insulting, right? Well, so that was my take on it. But this is why I love talk radio. We had a woman who called in and said, if you saw someone as another passenger who, who identified themselves as someone who has a hidden disability as another passenger, you might actually say, is it, you know, do you need anything? Can I help you? Mm. So, I mean, that's really made me think I'm with you. I thought it was a terrible idea, insulting, disrespectful, but not all my callers agreed. Well, uh, the joy of talk radio. Interesting. Well, you know, uh, sometimes, like you do the this stuff, right? I mean, do you have co- corporations and come with you, come to you with the plan because maybe you see or people who do crisis management, they see the bumps in the road that the company, well intended, might not see. So you're like, okay. How is this going to come across, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. That's that's why people like me in their day jobs make money. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say that maybe there's some instances like this that you don't know until you, uh, you know, you know, you run out of the flagpole. Now it's been run up, the, <laughs> ran up the flagpole and we need to take it down and find another flag. All right. So we're going to get the latest from Rick Westhead on charges against five hockey players from the 2018 World Junior Team. That later on, he's doing exclusive reporting for TSN and he has been the go-to guy whenever there is any kind of sports. Sports are a release. They're fun. They're where we escape. But there's an intersection of where the real world hits the privilege of sports sometimes. And Rick is one of the best reporters 
around covering this stuff. So he's going to join us a little bit later on. Also, some people are really angry. I was reading the comment section in one of the papers about how people feel about an exclusive deal between Manulife. For a small section of drugs, Manulife has made a deal with Loblaws. That means Shoppers Drug Mart, No Frills, Big Box, what is it, Superstore, that sort of thing. They have a whole bunch of different grocery labels, and I think most of them have pharmacy inside. So they're concerned that that monopoly could be problematic for people who are in small rural towns in this country, but it's going to keep the price down. So do we have, I, I was. Well, I was, so they say. Yes. So they say um, that. It, I, I have a problem with it. What is I your really problem do. with it? Well, I don't. So uh, on one hand, it is just specialty drugs, right? Mm. It's not saying you've got an allergy medication that's a prescription and you have to go to shoppers. Sure. That, that would, I think, outrage everybody. Yeah. But I still think, to your point about a small town, like you go to your local drugstore person that maybe if you're 80 years old, you've been going since you were five years old. So in a I don't small know town. where your farm is, but do you, where, would you go grocery shopping in, in the big city and then drive to the farm or do you well, go to the local general store? Uh, well, we, we go to Welland. I don't know if you call that yeah. the big city. Oh, that's Jim Richards yeah. getting a text. Yeah. Um, but I grew up in Listowel. Okay. So it's, it's very small town, right? 4,000 people. And you would have the small, independent, private pharmacy, and you'd have, we didn't have shoppers at the time, you would have had the bigger, sure. I think it might have been Rexall at the time. But but you're paying into a program, or your employer's paying in, or yep. both of you. Why should you be told that if you were on these 260 drugs, one of them, you have to buy it at a different pharmacy know, when just... your whole family's been going to Rexall for 60 years. I just assumed that, hey, if if our plan, our, if our company plan is going to, if, if Manulife is going to get a deal, then maybe the company that I'm working for is going to get a deal. And for most Canadians, I bet you, even like when my parents lived up north, they wouldn't go to the local town for grocery shopping. They would make a weekly trek into Perry Sound or Bracebridge and they do their grocery shopping. And I'm guessing that that might be the story for more, most people who live rurally. I don't know if they're all going into the little town to pay $10 for one apple, but um, I, I'm just guessing that there is a, going to be a convenient time when you can go in. Now, uh, I, there is, is this a slippery slope? Well, if and, you're against choice, Jim. Yes, I guess I'm against choice. <laughs> There's a lot of choice within the... I'm, am I the only one saying nice things about Loblaws these days? Uh, okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about that because I didn't realize that so many people are going to have a problem with it. Also, we are going to talk with the food professor about the industry minister. Yeah, I'm going to do some work right now, and I'm going to look for uh, more uh, competition in the uh, grocery. This is He's working the phones, Jim. Working the, it's just... I like, okay, I'm glad you're going to do something, but the something is just a charade for people to pay attention. I mean, like, may, we do need to go get a time machine and give some teeth to the competition bureau because it's like we're looking around the room going, like, if only we could have, I don't know, not allowed Sobeys to buy up Farm Boy and now <laughs> we're like, we're all outraged that there's not enough competition. That happened like two years ago, two, three years ago. It's not like that long ago where now we're like, oh, what is the, what is the solution here? And I don't know how competition isn't five 
Like you, we've got three big grocery standalones. Then you got Costco, and then you got Loblaws. That's five big companies. Sure, like how many industries have more than five big com companies in when it comes to competition? Like when you, like what is the number when it comes to competition? So you think five's okay? Well, bring in more, but I think five for most industries. You name a different industry that has five more than five options. Clothing. Okay. Shoes. All right. All right. Okay. Cars. All right. <laughs> All right. Maybe not a very good point. Um, <laughs> but good luck. Like, how are you? Because I think federally we tried to do it with uh, telecoms, right? How are you yeah. going to get AT&T excited about coming into this country, putting uh, towers right across the whole thing when, you know, companies like this one and Rogers and TELUS have a 20-year start in doing that kind of stuff? It's, it's true. Now, there's a whole infrastructure, you know, discussion that takes place with telecoms that yeah. muddies the waters a little bit. But I think you're 100% right, which is the answer was way back when the Competition Bureau let this happen. Yeah. It should never have let yeah. it happen. Yeah. And, uh, and not all of it way back. How are you going to work the phones? I can see an executive picking up the phone in the States going, oh, yeah, yeah, come to Canada. Uh, yeah, I was just talking to my friend at Target and uh, my friend at, so well. and my friend at Lowe's. And uh, yeah, no, thank you. you Someday know? you and I can have my conversation about what went wrong with Target and why I should have gone to work for them. Oh, you should have. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's Jim Richards, his show, 7 to 10 News Talk tonight, right here on News Talk 1010. Coming up next, our former mayor, John Tory, is going to join me to talk about FIFA World Cup, what it's going to cost you and me, whether that's part of the answer to lower taxes in the upcoming budget. Stay with me. It's Deb Hutton on The Rush. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. I'm your guest host, Deb Hutton. I'll be back here at 2 o'clock tomorrow to do it all over again. Tomorrow's Classic Lotto 649 jackpot is an estimated $5 million, and the Gold Ball jackpot is an estimated $38 million. Enter online at Newstalk1010.com for your chance to win $100 in Lotto 649 tickets with Encore. Lotto 649, find your possible. I uh, spoke a little bit earlier in the afternoon about, as I quite frankly have been doing most days over the last week or so, about the Toronto City budget. Of course, we were introduced to a budget from staff from uh, Budget Chief Shelley Carroll a couple of weeks ago. And this Thursday, Olivia Chow, our mayor, under the process um, included in the strong mayor legislation that was introduced a few years ago, brings forward her budget. So we're, you know, speculating, discussing, and I would argue suggesting on my part things that can and should be in Mayor Chow's budget that would be different from the city staff budget that has been out there and has been undergoing some scrutiny. And in my view, with a $1.8 billion gap, with a property tax hike as much as 16.5% for many taxpayers in the province, I think we really need to take a look and discuss every possible option to ensure that we are spending on priorities and not wasting money, not spending on things that might be a priority at some time, but not in the fiscal year this year because of the deficit, because of the high tax increases and because of the spending that we find ourselves in. And so the Toronto Star ran a column today about FIFA and their 2026 World Cup, which, as you know, Toronto is one of the host cities. They talked about the cost 
to taxpayers of being one of those host cities. And so I thought it was a good opportunity to be joined by the individual who was part of Toronto's bid, and that is former Mayor John Tory, News Talk 1010 contributor. Welcome to The Rush. Hi, Deb. So give us your view as to whether or not in 2024 we still should be moving ahead with, I know we're getting closer to 2026, moving ahead with the costs associated with being a host city. Well, aside from the fact that everybody signed on to do this, and most enthusiastically me, and I make no apology for that, I think it would be embarrassing to pull out at this stage. But having said that, let's leave that aside. I think this is going to be a hit. I think it is going to be something that brings a joy to a city that needs some joy. I think it's going to bring economic benefit to a city that needs the economic benefit. It's going to put this city uh, on display on the map uh, to hundreds of millions of people quite a few times around the world. Because every game, no matter what teams are playing, uh, when it comes to the World Cup, has audiences of hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of people. So I, I look at it and just say, you know, we had the same talk before the Pan Am Games. And you may have been opposed to that. I don't know. But there were people who were opposed. And then when it happened, and it was a huge success, and uh, it brought a lot of activity and, and positivity to Toronto. And I would argue a lot of people come back here to visit, to live, to invest, because they see it or experience it uh, in these sporting events. And I wouldn't do them all the time. I voted against and, and did not proceed with a bid for the Olympics, for example, when I was mayor. But I did proceed with this one because it did not involve billions of dollars of expenditure on a lot of facilities. It is going to have the eyes of the world on Toronto. And I thought it was a good thing to do, and I still do. So to be honest, I'm actually not opposed to it. <laughs> I, I okay. actually agree with you. I think where, um, you know, this column just sort of opened up the discussion today, because we still don't know now, I think we learned this weekend how many games we're actually getting uh, as part of being that package of host cities. But I actually just think that we are talking about a police budget that is so far proposed to be less than what the police services board is looking for by about $12 million. We are clearly looking at a, a really high property tax increase. And so the Toronto Star raised the question, and I did with our listeners as well, as to whether or not uh, your point aside, you know, around the embarrassment and whether we could even get out of it without penalty, whether this is really something that we should be putting all of the money into in each and every year. And part of their discussion was around the cost, the direct cost for the secretariat to run this big project in the next two and a half years. You know, I mean, I saw the secretariat numbers. I don't remember them now, but they were, you know, seven figure numbers, meaning more than a million dollars. And I think it's going to rise as we get closer. But, you know, if, if that, that is not the way, in my view, and I'm just giving you my opinion, because that's what I guess I do as a contributor there and not as a former mayor, but I'm the same person. That is not the way we're going to fix the government. We're going to fix the government by having proper financing of, of things like refugees and housing and so on, uh, in which the other governments properly participate. And we're going to fix the government by running it better so that you're not sending five people out to do jobs that one could do. Uh, and, and that's how we're going to fix the government. It's not going to be by saying long term projects like this, you know, that are long term. It's going to happen in two years. You're going to have uh, the secretariat. Somebody has to plan this. I mean, it's not going to happen by itself. Right. And so. Uh, you know, I just think that's not the right answer and, and that to pick over that number and somehow suggest either that those people are, you know, feather bedding or slacking off or whatever. It's just not fair. They're running a, a big event that we're going to put on with gusto. We're going to be the eyes of the world are going to be on us. People here, I bet you any money. I'll bet you anything you want right now, Deb. 
The people of this city are going to be excited, and this is going to be a huge political fuss when it actually gets here uh, in 2026, and people are going to be wondering why we ever debated it. You know, look at our city. With every possible team that could ever play here, has a community here that will be coming to support it. The streets will be alive. Uh, people will be feeling good, and this debate will be way back in the midst. And maybe by then we'll have opened up a drinking hours so we don't have to go through that individual yeah, process. Well, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so right. As, as I said at the outset, I mean, I and, and I do support uh, FIFA World Cup. I just I do think we are not spending as much time in this pre-budget era talking about how we could reduce costs. And one of the other conversations I had this afternoon was over open versus closed tendering for companies that do business with the city. 2019, the provincial government opened up open tendering, which means anybody, you know, with certain standards, certain regulations, certain uh, parameters for a project can bid, as opposed to closed tendering, which had been the case where only a set number of individual um, businesses, suppliers are invited to bid on public contracts. There's an estimate that you could save up to two to $300 million a year. The only city that didn't take the uh, municipal, that didn't take the option of open bidding up was the city of Toronto. Your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think that at the time there were uh, strong arguments presented as to why the existing uh, unions that had done business with us uh, were the people who uh, knew best, who could best uh, follow the, uh, you know, the various safety and other rules that apply in particular to public sector work, um, and that we had formed effective partnerships with them that uh, were to the benefit of the citizens of uh, Toronto over time. You can't take it at any one point in time. So, I mean, at the end of the day, that decision was made. It was made by quite a substantial margin of the city council, as I recall, uh, as was the World Cup, by the way. I mean, I think that was 21 to 3. So there weren't too many people speaking up then. People, in hindsight, you know, go back and revisit these things over and over again. It's one of the reasons why government doesn't work well, um, you know, because they revisit things constantly. I think we had 12 votes on the Scarborough subway, you know, all the same, but 12 different ones at different <laughs> times. And so, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I think the benefits at that time were judged by the majority of the members of city council of sticking with the group of unions. I think it's more than two, but it's, 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 it's a group of unions that have historically dealt with us and that they've done a good job. They've done an efficient job. They're subject to all the fair wage policies and whatnot. And, but that was a better way to go than opening it up. But uh, these things can always be revisited. So if somebody wants to revisit it, I guess all they have to do is, you know, at that system, they just have to move a motion and they can revisit it again. And if they make a different decision, then so be it. One of the things we're really good at in the city of Toronto, as you pointed out. John Tory, always a pleasure to have you on The Rush. Thanks, I Jeff. think you and I are going to be together in a couple of days to discuss Mayor Chow's budget. I think that's Thursday afternoon. On the of February. Yep, I'll be there. See you then. That's it for me. Have a great evening. I'll be back tomorrow at 2. Thanks to Ben. Thanks to Mike. Talk to you soon.